Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Time to be either a kid or somebody who's looking after a kid, given all the anxieties that children out there have had, the pandemic, news about the mass shootings. These are difficult times. But thankfully, thankfully, there are some opportunities for all of us who are concerned about both explaining mental health issues to our kids and also helping them with their own. And here to talk about that is Ross Zabo. He is the wellness director of the Geffen Academy in Los Angeles. He's a mental health advocate, an author, CEO of the Human Resource Human Power Project. Uh, Ross, thanks for joining us. First of all, what, what goes through your mind as an expert in this field when you hear the news, the news that bombards us, for example, about the mass shootings? Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I think the first thing that goes through my mind is just, you know, when can this slow down and, and what can we do about it? I think that we've all gotten to a place of not again or thinking about these things in a way that's like, how does this keep happening? And so a lot of times behind these headlines, there are people doing a lot of really like great work and powerful work. You know, the youth mental health crisis is pretty massive. But one thing that I see as I travel around the country and even in my own school is there are a lot of young people, there are a lot of educators devoted to trying to make change. And so while all of these headlines are so kind of overwhelming and seemingly nonstop, I try to balance it with like what I actually see happening on the ground. And and the hopes that that so many people do have behind these headlines. And there's certainly a hope that more 18, 19 year old white men who have been responsible for some of the latest mass shootings can sort of be caught instead of falling through the cracks and buying an AR-15 and doing this. Are there some new programs or new approaches that you've seen over the past couple of years that is proving to be more effective in trying to help specifically you know, teenage adolescents who are dealing with depression, who are dealing with anxiety and, and perhaps even violent tendencies? Yeah, so you know the mental health crisis is a is a giant puzzle, and there are many pieces to that puzzle. Having access to mental health care is the most critical piece, and and we don't have enough of that happening in our country. The piece that I focus on is teaching about mental health the same way that students learn about physical health. So I think that one of the one of the best things we can do is be teaching about actual mental health definition, vocabulary, coping skills, and normalizing mental health in schools. And so that's that's something that I see happening around the country, and it's something I work on every day. In other words, taking away the shame or humiliation and trying to say to kids, look, you know, you get a cold maybe every couple of months. It's not unusual for you to get depressed, uh, severely depressed, just as you might get severely sick. And oh, by the way, there are treatments for all of this. Yeah, and so a lot of times you hear this kind of buzzword in our country, like, well, we need to teach mental health the same way we teach physical health, and it's true. But there there are actual concrete ways to do that. One way is to teach that mental health isn't having a problem. You know, a lot of times in our society, we look at mental health as a spectrum as like, you either have a severe mental health disorder or you're sane, 
and a lot of people fall in between the middle. Well, I have bipolar disorder, which is a severe mental health disorder. I'm also sane at the same time. So we need to change the way we frame mental health and teach it not from a place of you should only seek help when you have a problem, but you should take care of your mental health every single day. You should have a vocabulary for that. You should have coping skills for that. And you don't need to wait till something big happens to actually find ways to strengthen yourself, to learn ways to be vulnerable, to learn ways to express yourself, and to learn ways to balance your mental health. And that's a really significant change. We need to start actually teaching mental health literacy in a way that that normalizes this concept for people and allows them to do what you said, understand that there's a difference between feeling depressed or having depression or feeling nervous and having anxiety and just make that a part of their everyday language. I'm so glad that you mentioned your own experience with bipolar issues and you attempted suicide when you were a teenager. Tell me about that phase in your life and how you essentially got through it. Yeah, I uh, was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 16. Uh, I went through a lot of trauma between the ages of 11 and 12. And the unfortunate thing about that trauma I went through between 11 and 12 was the coping mechanisms I learned were to shut down and to drink alcohol. So by the time I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, my coping mechanisms were already in place. I was already hiding my emotions. I was already shutting down and I was already drinking alcohol. So by the time I developed depression during my senior year of high school, I didn't know how to talk about it. I started with like a really strong feeling of loneliness, thought the loneliness would go away. It didn't. It built the thoughts of death and suicide every day. I thought those would go away. They didn't. And then in January of my senior year of high school, I attempted to take my own life. I think one of the hardest things and one of the biggest things we miss about depression, especially in young males, is that I really hated myself. And I hated myself more than I think anyone could imagine. And when a person hates themselves, there are no consequences. I wasn't afraid to drive drunk. I wasn't afraid to do drugs. I wasn't afraid to have unprotected sex. I wasn't afraid to take huge risks because I didn't care if I died. So the journey for a lot of young men out of depression and out of self-hatred is a long one. And unfortunately, there's no, there's no linear path for that. I like to explain to to people in terms of my own sort of you know bouts with you know family issues with depression that for people don't quite understand it's almost like a, a like a cloud falls in on you and everything you remember about the past is shaped by that cloud and looks dark everything you think about the future looks bleak and there is no sort of future and it may not necessarily seem rational to think oh my god my life has just been a total waste until now but you get into for people who are depressed you get into that sort of space where that's that's how you think and it's mm-hmm. it's there, there are ways to deal with that. There are a lot of ways to deal with it. You know, I, I think one of the more frustrating things is when I when I attempted to take my own life, I didn't actually want to die. I just didn't know how to live anymore. I didn't know how to live with the, the cloud that you talk about, the constant thoughts of death and suicide and everything overwhelming me. And taking my own life seemed like a way out of that. There are many, many steps between that. There are many steps that people can take. One is finding a way to express yourself. If it's not verbally, just finding coping mechanisms like exercise, music, hanging out with friends, doing something that allows you to express your emotions in a way that that may not just be verbal. Obviously, talking about it is really helpful. Other things people can do is, you know, go to a therapist, get a treatment, find ways to really learn about themselves. But I think we live in a society that wants quick fixes. And so when we're in a constant or deep state of depression, a lot of times we think like, okay, well, I want to get out of this and it needs to change tomorrow. And when it doesn't change tomorrow, people with depression like myself felt even more defeated. And 
you know, a lot of times people talk about coping mechanisms as being like a change of of habit, but it's it's not a habit formation. You're literally rewiring your brain, and it takes you know weeks or months to do that. Yeah, I mean the the understanding that this is a process, not a quick fix, is is so crucial. When we look at the last couple of years, and as a parent and other parents and kids, I mean, it's been an unusual couple of years, right? I mean, for almost two years that a lot of schools were sort of shut down, kids were having to socialize. Uh, through Zoom uh, and then wear masks uh, when they're in school. Um, are there particular challenges that you see now, uh, or is it, you know, or do we try to address the anxieties that kids have as a result of the past couple of years in the same way that we would treat them normally? I think we have to change some things. You know, uh, we spend so much time in schools and as an educator in a school, focusing on the skills that we think will prepare kids for the future. So we teach them math and science and English and history and all those things. But what we're seeing for young people as adults, especially when they get to college, is they don't have the life skills they need to just resolve a room, a conflict with a roommate or to ask someone out on a date or to do these things. So at my school, Geffen Academy at UCLA, what we do is we teach them once a week, every week from grade six through grade 12, these different life skills about their mental health that they can use wherever they go after school. After after high school, because some people take a gap year, some people go to college. It's not all a linear path. And I think that there are more schools interested in doing this. There are more schools aware of this. We host a mental health teacher training institute at UCLA every summer to teach other schools how to do this. But we can't keep doing the same thing and expecting different results. And if we are not taking the time to teach young people about these skills and about what they are going through, then we're missing an opportunity because that second largest period of brain growth is ages 12 to 25. And that's where we often create systems for the rest of our life. I joke with people that being an adult is just trying to undo adolescence, but in some way it is. So we really need to start doing something different. And you know, one of the things that has shocked me in my life is that do you expect, for example, an Ivy League university to have some of the world-class facilities and help for students who are Suffering from mental health issues, depressed, whatever it is, but there's almost there's been an assumption at some universities. Oh, we have the best and the brightest; they don't need much help, um, even though they do. What's been what's the way? Whether it's an Ivy League university or a public university or even a high school, people who are interested in your curriculum, what do they do to get in touch with you to start incorporating what you've been teaching and practicing into their own efforts? Yeah, so I wear a lot of hats. Uh, I have a company called Human Power Project that creates mental health curriculum for people ages 11 all the way up to corporate. And then my school, Geffen Academy at UCLA, has a program where we, again, teach students about their mental health once a week, but it includes lessons on healthy relationships, healthy sexuality, drug and alcohol prevention, identity development, all those things. Uh, Again, it's Geffen Academy at UCLA. And each summer, we have a mental health teacher training institute. You can find all that information on our website just by Googling Geffen Academy at UCLA. And for educators and teachers out there, is it a very uh, onerous program? If they want, is there a way that if they wanted to just incorporate it once every couple of weeks or have yeah. lesson plans here and there? I mean, how immersive does it have to be? The most important thing we wanted to do was create lessons that could be taught anywhere, charter schools, public schools, anywhere. We take a public health approach to mental health and not a therapeutic approach. So we teach skills and allow students space to figure out how to use those skills, but we don't do the therapy piece because that would require so much immense training that you know it wouldn't be replicable. So all of these lessons are very easy to pick up, plug and play, put into a classroom and really start having that important conversation about mental health. 
Yeah, and to say it's important is uh, is an understatement. Ross Zabo is uh, an author. His book is Kids' Book About Anxiety. He's also the wellness director at the Geffen Academy at UCLA, uh, mental health advocate, CEO of the Human Power Project. Uh, Ross, thanks so much, not only for being on the program, but for just for the incredible work that you're doing and the efforts that you're making. It is it is truly uh, making a big difference and giving a lot of us so much hope. So thank you, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. I love this show and keep doing the work you're doing because people really need to hear it. Thank you. Okay, take care. Pragmatic progresses in the 2022 campaign. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. One of my favorite primary races shaping up this summer uh, is in the state of New York. They've redrawn, redrawn their district maps, and there is a now 12th congressional district and incorporates parts of Manhattan, the Upper West Side, the Upper East Side, some other parts. But it pits two sitting members of Congress, two Democrats, Carolyn Maloney and Jerry Nadler, against each other, along with a few other challengers, including our guest, Suraj Patel. He calls himself a pragmatic progressive, which may or may not be smart politics, but we'll talk about that in just a sec. Serge, thanks for being on the show, we appreciate it. Thanks, David, thanks for having me. So it must, first of all, it must be daunting to think you're, not, you're going up not against just one Democratic incumbent, but two. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it isn't at all in that I've done this race before against one of these two. Uh, two years ago, we came within um, 3% of unseating Carolyn Maloney in what was one of the closest uh, primary uh, elections in the country. And this cycle, we learned from the New York Times earlier in the year that Maloney uh, engineered to cut young and progressive voters and Latino voters out of her district. And she made a deal in which she absorbed more of Jerry Nadler's district uh, to save her reelection because these folks don't try to go after young voters, they simply try to silence them. And what we have now in front of us is a comeuppance. It's a race that the Supreme Court of New York uh, tossed out their maps because they saw that gerrymandering and incumbency protection and they redrew them themselves. And these lines now pit two longtime incumbents, 60 years of time in Congress against one another and me. And a big difference is both of them, I believe, take corporate PAC money and you don't. Both, that's the single biggest difference I would say uh, uh, between the three of us, um, other than obviously generational differences. But um, both of them take corporate PAC money and not just small amount, but majorities of their uh, intake is corporate PAC money. In fact, um, Maloney and Nadler combined have taken $120,000 from BlackRock uh, since 2009. We just learned that BlackRock is a single largest shareholder um, of four of the largest gun manufacturers in the country. So this isn't just an academic thing. It's not just a message thing. It is a fundamental question of who are our representatives representing and why have we not gotten progress in Washington on fundamental issues? And do you believe it's because of this sort of establishment stuff that runs through their veins that because there's only their limits to how far they're willing to go on particular issues? Absolutely, I mean, look at that since 1973, we've now, our generation is going to have less reproductive rights, less gun control, less union rights, a series of things that have eroded in the 30 times two, 60 year career of Nadler and Maloney. And why would we trust them in year 61 to do anything different? We fundamentally lost the argument across the country on a variety of issues and lost the trust of the American people to govern them. It's gonna take a decade or more to gain these rights back at the least. Um, uh, and, you know, and that's a fight I'm willing to be in. I have the energy and the vigor and the ideas to be part of that debate. Um, I think what we're seeing from, from them is aristocracy. It is this idea they're entitled to this seat, redo their districts, take corporate money, 
and are now having a public food fight about um, who gets more credit, frankly, David, for the current state of the economy, the country, and the party. And they can have that debate. They're welcome to have that debate because I don't think any of us are really happy with it. What are you seeing in the poll numbers uh, to have sort of the two Democratic establishment in the, in the race? I, I imagine there's a hope that they sort of split some of the vote. Um, are you seeing much of an opportunity for you based on the numbers so far with the understanding the primary, of course, isn't until August? Yeah, so you know, you, you the topic of the, the segment you mentioned, opponent. So, so uh, there, you know, it is a three way race now. And we've got um, in this race two incumbents fighting over the sort of same pot of voters, just as you surmised. And there is a place right down the middle of this district uh, to pick up voters who are uh, disenchanted, disillusioned, and, and angry with the lack of progress on a variety of issues we promised to have made progress on. We all knocked on doors and made millions of phone calls uh, and got Democratic majorities in the House, Senate, and uh, White House. And we have seen a regression on a number of things like child care or child tax credit or gun control or you name it. And it feels like we're being governed by uh, the other party when in reality, we're the ones in power. So I think if you think about the frustrations out there across the, the city and country, um, there's a massive swath of the electorate that is ready for someone new. I can tell you, I just received our polling back. 57% of this electorate prefers somebody new with fresh ideas and energy over someone with seniority and experience. Now, two candidates are fighting over that other 43%, and one candidate is representing a different path forward. And that different path forward, you describe yourself as a pragmatic progressive. What does that mean? You know, so look, when, when I started my political career, it was to work for President Obama in 2007 and 8. Uh, at that time, if you recall, um, we had Democratic senators from Kansas, from Missouri, from Alaska, from Arkansas, from North Dakota. And it's not even uh, surmisable right now uh, in our current state of the party uh, to make that case. And the reason is this. We used to be versed in the art of persuasion, that we are not just demonizing people we disagree with. We are trying to come up with ways to bring them to our side on climate change, on immigration, on civil rights, on gun control. It's, un, uh, it's clear we're going to have to win people back. Um, with the issue, for example, of, of reproductive rights, 69% of Americans support Roe versus Wade. And yet 20% of that same group voted for Donald Trump, which means we're losing them on things like taxation and inequality and, and, and the number of issues I mentioned, to be comprehensive about those. And to win these people back is how we get some of these rights back. And that's the pragmatism part here. It's about being practical and making a new case for the same values. There has been an argument that the pragmatism for you, some of your critics would say, well, it has to do with, with Israel. That unlike a lot of other progressives, you are very staunchly supportive of Israel, of Israel's right to exist, providing military equipment. And there's some people who suggest, well, this is just Suraj uh, who is pandering to constituents in his district. What's your reaction to that? My reaction to that is very simple. And on the one hand in this race, you've got Carolyn Maloney, who has been a, a full APAC staunch supporter of the state of Israel, and you've got Jerry Nadler in the same way. And here you've got a third opportunity to select somebody who, um, you know, he who supports and has consistently supported a two-state solution, has consistently supported the right to Palestinian statehood, living alongside um, Israeli statehood. And and the question is, you know, can you uh, elect people who are willing to build those bridges and get to our goals? And that that is what I'm trying to do here. But of course, uh, this is not a pander in any way. In 2001, when I was a uh, a student at Stanford University, I signed a, a public letter 
um, denouncing sort of anti-Semitism and 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 BDS and and, and things like that. So th- by no means have I sort of switched on this positioning. Um, and just because my district has changed doesn't mean I plan to switch on that positioning at all. About the district, I always sort of imagined when I was living in the Upper West Side of Manhattan that if you're ever running for public office, easier to do it in some ways in Manhattan where you just go door to door to door to door in apartment buildings or wait outside subway stops and you can literally shake 10,000 hands in a day. Is that really the case? Is it like that or is there more sort of precise precision work that has to be done? I mean, we are doing that every single day. We are the only campaign out there with the energy and the youthfulness and the excitement in this race to be out every single day in the morning and in the evenings at farmers markets on the weekends and street fairs. And so that is a fundamental major part of our strategy, which is to remind people there's an election. It's an August 23rd primary, will probably be a very low turnout affair because no one has ever had an August primary in New York. And many of you who, you know, like yourself, who lived in New York knows that in August, right before Labor Day, this island empties out. Uh, with people going on vacation. Um, and so we know there's a fundamental issue here of educating voters about the primary and getting the request absentee ballots. So we do that. But David, there's also obviously a, a precision targeting that's required when you have a city that, a district that probably, you know, in, in its in its population, like every district in, in the state of New York has to be about 777,000 people. But uh, during the day, my district probably swells to 7 million people. This includes all of Midtown. And so you've got to be a little smart about making sure you're not hitting this massive number of people who are here um, who go vote you know, in New Jersey or Connecticut or wherever they live. There does seem to be a natural disadvantage, obviously, in terms of the, the, the politicking in this race if you're not taking corporate money because that's less money that you can bring in. You're in one of the most, perhaps the most expensive media market in the United States. So Do you have to spend a ton of your time? I mean, just trying to ask for small dollar donations or asking just ordinary people for donations as opposed to, you know, others who can simply rely on their corporate PACs to send the message for them. Yeah, but I mean, there's this fundamental reason that, you know, I teach business ethics at NYU. I do not believe you should take money from the very same companies you're supposed to regulate. And when people donate to a campaign, and unfortunately in this system, we have to have money and I'm a full supporter of public funding for, uh, for political campaigns. Um, but in this current reality, we have to have money. Um, but when people donate to my campaign, they're donating for representation, they're donating for hope, they're donating as a protest to the incumbents. There's a variety of reasons they have. When a corporation donates to a campaign, there's only one motive, and that is return on investment. And you should ask yourself why our political system is so skewed towards massive corporate interests that have taken over our economy at the expense of small business and workers and immigrants and people like that. And the reason is very simply because you follow the money trail and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that um, our government's been captured by special interests that now fund, uh, wholeheartedly fund campaigns. One policy question before we let you go, there's a proposal in terms of guns. Given that uh, Democrats don't have uh, the Republican support, there's a proposal by a Virginia congressman to try to use reconciliation. In other words, tax AR-15s by like 10,000% to make them so expensive that an 18-year-old, 19-year-old can't actually go out with their own money and buy them because they can't afford them. Uh, Republicans are crying foul, saying, no, you can't do something like this through reconciliation, although I think you can. Is that the kind of alternative you would support? I would absolutely support that alternative. And let's not get lectures from Republicans about what is fair grounds and what is not. They stole two Supreme Court seats. So, no, I don't want to. I don't want to get bleeped in this. So, <laughs> uh, but, but 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 on the other side of this, um, 
I think there's a lot of things we need to be doing to educate the American public on the gun issue. For example, I think people would be appalled to know that in 2005, um, the gun industry got a bill passed by George W. Bush and Republicans that shields it from every type of liability for the torts caused by um, the use of their products. Now, not tobacco, not the National Football League, not um, Coca-Cola, literally no industry in America has that kind of blanket legal protection. Why? You know, and, and we should explain that to people because it's not even a fair playing field. I, I, the liability issue is another amazing one. Airlines are required to carry liability. Why can't gun manufacturers as well? My and campaign has to. My campaign has to carry liability. Yeah. Uh, you know, my campaign for six months has to carry liability and workman's comp and all those things. But somehow Smith and Wesson do not, as they target people with AR-15 ads that are predilected to this kind of behavior, young males around 18 years of age, come on. Serge Patel, he is a candidate for the 12th Congressional District in the Democratic primary in August in New York. Serge, good luck to you and thanks so much for coming on the conversation, we appreciate it. Thanks, David. And that'll do it for this edition of our show. On behalf of Alyssa Sammons, Mark Gillespie, Asher Cofield, and there's the website by the way for Serge if you wanna help him out. But on behalf of our entire team at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster, thanks for joining us.